Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, today we're going to look at Gospel Maturity Part 2. So the last two weeks we looked at Part 1 in two sermons. Today we're going to talk about Part 2. And I want us to look at the essential absence in our obedience. The essential absence in our obedience. You know, the process of Christian maturity, as we've talked about over the last two weeks, comes into real time. And that's what we're looking at today, that moment by moment, step by step, day by day process of becoming more like Jesus and how it is learned by a repeated practice. And so let's go to the word, Philippians 2. I'm going to read verses 14 through 18 before we continue. Paul writes, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Once Paul clarifies in verses 12 and 13 the work of what I would call the joined relationship of Christian maturity. And what do you mean by joined relationship? Well, verse 12 says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So we have this joined relationship where we join the work of God that he is doing within us. Once he clarifies that, in our process of Christian maturity, now he moves to provide some very practical application for us to be careful that we don't short-circuit the process. You can have your whole house wired and you can have the electrical power hooked into it, but a short in one place in the wire will cut the electricity in the whole house. And that's what can happen in our growth and maturity with Jesus. One thing for us to note is this, that Paul doesn't just create another part of our to-do list. So often we perceive Christianity to be about a task list, right? To-dos and to-don'ts. As long as we get those right, everything will be right. Well, that's not what Paul is going to teach us today. But what he warns of is for us to be careful about an essential absence that must be present or not, if you will, in our life in our obedience to Jesus. Here's what I want you to see. This is the big picture. Is that Christians guard the essential absence to shine his light in the world and invite others to rejoice in Jesus. Recently, we watched the World Series. Some of you are thrilled that the Atlanta Braves won and some of you are very upset that the Houston Astros did not. Most of us couldn't care less because it was not our dearly beloved cards or royals that were competing in that. And we thought that we were going to get there, right? 
About game four, I don't remember exactly which game it was, but one of the commentators began to tell a story about the Houston Astros slugger, uh, uh, his name, what was it, Jordan Alvarez. He had been in a hitting slump at some time previously in that year. I believe it was this year. It could have been the one before. But the commentator began to relate how it was that he recognized he was in a hitting slump and, and then had to do something about it. And he tells the story about how one day after hitting, he'd been striking out, striking out, striking out. And strikeout is not a good thing when you get paid to hit home runs, right? You're paid to slug the ball for us. That means we don't want you getting on base. We want you cleaning the bases off. That's your job. And when you strike out, well, that stands in direct contrast to your job, right? And he says one day he walked out after striking out, he walked back into the dugout and the manager, Dusty Baker, said to him, if you don't stop moving your foot and dropping your shoulders, you're never going to get your power back and you're never going to hit the ball and get a base hit. And just that quick, he just didn't think anything about it. He assessed, diagnosed and and treated the the whole uh, problem right there in one statement. And he said, uh, the slugger said that he paused for a moment and he wanted to respond, but instead of responding, he just walked on by and began to think about it. Well, as we begin to look at the problem of the things in our life that hinder us from growing in our relationship with Christ, we're going to find a similar pattern for Christian maturity that the slugger found in correcting his slump in batting. Here's what I want you to see. Gospel maturity is cultivated by a three-part pattern of correcting a wrong action, of training in the right one, and rejoicing to invite others in as well. And this is how we pursue this maturity This maturity. You see, the first part of Christian maturity of that pattern is this, that we refuse to practice anything that opposes our true identity in Jesus. Let's go back to verse 14 and look again at what Paul tells us. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Without grumbling or disputing. He doesn't tell us, remember the Ten Commandments. That's important, right? I mean, yes, it's important. Those are the Ten Commandments of the Bible. He doesn't tell us, remember this law and that rule and this manner and and all of these things. But rather, Paul says this, do all things without. Friends, this is the essential absence of our obedience. The things that must not be there in order for our obedience to remain. He's warning them Of what not to do. And what does he say? Don't grumble and don't dispute. Let's look at these words. What does the word grumble mean? Well, grumble is really that general disposition of dissatisfaction. It's the angst in the gut, if you will. We more commonly refer to it today as complaining. Are you familiar with this concept? Complaining. If you're parents, you're familiar with this concept. Right? And you were probably familiar with it long before you became parents. But when we complain, he's going to tell us that it does things to us that we may not be aware of, but nonetheless are affected by. So often today, I think we've learned how to hide our complaining. We camouflage it under cynical humor so often. 
Cynicism being one of the key gifts that the world celebrates uh, 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 most highly in its cynical humor. And, and, and if, we don't, if we don't camo it and hide it as cynical humor, often we cloak it by the speculation that we cast when we ask strategic questions or ask questions in strategic ways. You know, it's that moment when you're able to ask a question, but instead of really wanting the information, you're actually saying something about what you're addressing. In so many ways, our complaints get subversively hidden. But complaining is what I would call the conversation of our sinful nature. It's when our anxiety and our disgruntlement and even our disbelief and our doubts take on verbs and nouns and get formed into sentences. And no matter what it speaks of, it's never positive, it's never good, it's never helpful, and it's never beneficial. Now he puts with grumble or complain the idea of dispute. Now dispute is really the idea of arguing. And it speaks to our our reasoning or rationalizing of our sin and, and how it is that it creates doubt and disbelief within us. And, and mostly what he's aiming at here in saying our grumble and disputing is he's speaking about how it is our complaining actually turns into arguments. Sometimes with ourselves, but almost always in aiming them at others to create division. And so we see how these two go hand in hand, to complain and to argue, to dispute, or excuse me, to grumble and to dispute. And here's what Paul is trying to say in verse 14, everything about the Christian's life is to be done with the essential absence of rejecting sinful actions that oppose our true identity in Jesus because they add no benefit to anything about our life. This is the essential absence, friends. What does he say? Stop doing this? No. He says this, do all things without. That's important because he's helping us direct the focus of our life somewhere else instead of being consumed with what sin is tempting to distract us by Maybe the greatest illustration and example of grumbling and disputing is found in Exodus chapter 16 when it records how the Israelites practice grumbling and disputing towards Moses and Aaron. You'll remember that God had used Moses and Aaron to lead them out of Egyptian slavery. After 400 plus years, you would think somebody had a little gratitude in the crowd, but no the first thing that came out of their mouth when they left Egypt was, I'm thirsty! And that, it was like a spark that lit a dry field. It just lit open. And here's what the Bible tells us. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron, but God counted it as rebellion against himself. Don't miss that, friends. Why? Because complaining and arguing is so easily cloaked in dismissive terms that it couldn't possibly have an ultimate negative effect. And yet God says it's rebellion against him. They grumbled because they had forsaken God's blessing and were forsaking his provision. You see, complaining and arguing always disrupts God's work among a people 
because it trips up God's work within a person. Imagine if every cynical comment that came into your mind, every act of complaint, actually nullified what you could identify as one aspect of your own spiritual growth and maturity. So when the thought crossed your mind to complain, or the temptation to in some way dispute or argue about something first crossed your mind, immediately upon that moment, you recognized if you utter these words, this is going to be the automatic transaction of lessening or of belittling your own growth or maturity. If you could see that in real time, would it matter? Because that's what Paul is telling us it does to us. And that's his point. When Christians complain and argue, all we do is give voice to our sin. And we skew an accurate depiction of any situation. And we create tension and division with others. But most importantly, he teaches, we bear false witness about God because we deny our own gospel hope and joy when we entertain the practice. That's pretty potent, isn't it? Like when, when we, if we could just see that when that complaint and the, the, the temptation to speak it crossed our mind, if we could in that moment remember this, if I speak this and give legitimacy to it, I'm stripping myself of my own hope and my own joy in Christ. You see, complaining and arguing, as Paul is teaching us here, is the quickest way to short-circuit God's work of maturity in your life. Because it always forms the easiest and the most accessible expression of disbelief and disobedience for us. It's always ultimately directed towards God, even when we aim it and share it with other people. And it damages everyone in its path, and very often even by its ripples when others hear about and come into contact with it. I was once told by someone who had come to me to confess and to ask for forgiveness about explaining why it was that they had complained about me and, and that they had com- uh, accused me of some things that, that to some other people. I, mean, I didn't know anything about it when it took place, but as they were telling me this, they said, you know, I just felt like I had to tell someone And what Paul says is this, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have to complain. You don't have to argue. But we're all prone to do it. Why? Because it is the voice of our sin. It is the voice of our sin at work within us. Complaining is as innate to the natural self as blaming because of sin. No one has to be taught to blame. No one has to be taught to complain. No one has to be taught to argue. We learn this about 16 to 24 months into parenting. Oh my goodness, they have more of my spouse in them than I realized. Right? And then you go, wait, I better not say that out loud. I'll act like it's both of us, but we all know who it is. That's where we learn it. The first time a toy is ripped out of the hand of a sibling, and you go, oh, And it shocks you. And Paul is telling us that the only way to stop this is to dethrone self and worship the Lord. And how? Continue to work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. 
The more we complain, the more we reorient our perspective of all things away from Jesus enthroned as Lord to a self-centered me of all of life. That's what complaints do. One problem, think about this for a moment, one problem continually complained over distorts one's view of the whole world. I mean, we, we can be upset about somebody burning dessert and it can ruin the week. You say, well, that's never happened to me. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was something other than that. But it can be the smallest thing that threatens to disrupt the whole world. Let me illustrate it this way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to date myself a little bit with this, but some of you are going to know exactly what I'm talking about. When skateboards first became popular, or when I can remember them them first becoming popular, they were only about 14 to 16 inches long. They were tiny little things. And they were shaped in a two-dimensional, like, uh, um, spaceship kind of thing. It came down, and it went to a little point at the front, and the back was flipped up. Mine was blue. I don't know if they had multicolors back in the day. We were just glad to have something else to, to play with, you know. And so w- you would take them outside and they had these tiny, tiny wheels on them. And you would get on concrete and man, they would fly. I mean, they would fly. But they had one fatal flaw in them. Just as you reached max speed and you were screaming down the sidewalk, you never saw it coming, but the smallest pebble would Stop the skateboard in an instant, defying all laws of creation in that moment, stopping the skateboard instantly, but leaving the rider fully victimized by a combination of inertia, gravity, and concrete. It would ruin those new pants. I mean, every fear that a mother has ever contrived of in her mind and heart about the worst things that could happen to her child, right as they said, hey, look, mom, wham, right there in front of her. It, 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 it was painful, friends. I see people riding them today, and I go, you have no idea. That's not a real skateboard. That's a can't-go-wrong board. Groaning and complaining are the pebbles of your life that never seen upend you and leave you fully susceptible to sin's deception. Friends, I offer you this piece of advice. Listen to your complaints. They can actually serve to benefit you. Listen to your complaints, not when you speak them, not when your heart is really filling with them, but when they first cross your mind. And there you will find the very points in your own life where unbelief still exists. Where you're doubting God. Where you're still churning over some measure of unbelief, doubt, or speculation about God. And if you don't get rid of it, it will become the single greatest spiritual problem that you have because that's what complaining and arguing are that's why Paul says he he doesn't say you know listen he he could have easily said uh, listen stop murdering right and we'd all be like yes don't commit adultery or sexual immorality I mean that's all on the list here right don't lie that's a good one Paul don't steal that's a good one but what did he say 
do all things. Why? Because, because as we work out our salvation and as God is working to work and to will within us for his good pleasure, like he's saying is we're walking in this light of obedience to him, but do not begin to entertain complaining and arguing because it will upend everything that God is doing in you. But why is it I say that it's our single greatest spiritual problem? Because it's just so easy to practice. And so often, either because we won't stop or because we've surrounded our people who've gotten into a pattern with us, either at their initiation or ours, that, that we don't even sometimes recognize what we're doing anymore. But the conversation always goes the same way. You know, it's interesting, um, the Astro Slugger, as he described what took place he said this, that foot movement that was upending everything about his batting stance and his swing, he never knew it until that instant when his manager, Dusty Baker, mentioned it to him. He said, I had no idea what I was doing with my foot. But he pointed it out and then in practice I began to watch video and realize what I was doing. You see, refusing to complain and argue must be absent from our life and until it is absent we can't continue because it's going to upend our obedience and so we've got to identify it so we can conquer it and replace it with a correct action grumbling and arguing among the church is always sin against God no matter how many people agree or entertain or participate but it's always most destructive to the one that's doing it and so this first part of our Christian maturity pattern is that we refuse to practice anything that opposes our true identity in Christ. So what are we to do instead? Well, the second part of our pattern is this. We're to hold fast to the word to live as his light in the world. Hold fast to the word to live as his light in the world. Sorry. Verse 15 and 16 Paul calls on the Philippians to set their house in order so that God's purpose for them as a witnessing community can be fulfilled. And look how he does this. Four simple words. That you may be. Now, I don't want you to miss this because Christianity is about our new identity before it's our new doing. You catch that? That you may be is a statement of being, not a statement of doing. All of our doing flows out of our being. There's no question about that. And we can learn who we truly believe we are and what we believe about ourselves, and ultimately about God by watching our actions, which is kind of what we're talking about here. But first and foremost, Paul says this, that you may be. That you may be. It reminds us of God's blessing that has been placed on us in salvation, that has given us our new life in Christ. And, and even as we look back in chapter 1, verse 27, when he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, this is an explanation for how it is we live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, when we choose to speak the language of our sin, when we choose to sing the song of unrighteousness and complaining, when we echo the praise of our own self-righteousness in arguing, when we bellow the brokenness of our own heart's hard stubbornness, we act 
contrary to the truth of God's salvation, of what God has said about us. And first and foremost, we're arguing with God, regardless of who we share it with, saying something about Him and what He has failed to do in our salvation, instead of appreciating and praising Him for His righteousness, His glory, and His favor that He has put on us. But when we stop complaining and arguing, when we have this essential absence in our life, and we begin to hold fast to His Word, we are released in that instant to live as we've been made new. Look, refusing to complain and argue releases the Christian to live as children of God. And don't miss this because I think it's critical. Obedience by faith as God has redeemed us. Look right in the middle of obedience is what? That you may be. Be. The people God has made you to be. That's what obedience by faith is all about. Holding fast to the word by obedience is how we shine the light of the one who has shown the light of his life in us. We live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, Paul says. But in the midst of that crooked and twisted generation, we are called to shine as his lights. Realize what Paul has not told us to do. We are not told that we are the light. The light is not naturally within us. We are not told to create light. We are told to shine as lights in the world by holding fast to the word of life. You see, the only way that we shine as God's light in the world is by our obedience to his word. That's how his light shines in us. And we are not to polish God's truth so we can somehow make it look better. We're not to accessorize it to make it more appealing to people. We're not to alter God's word so we can accommodate people's preferences when they don't like it. We're not to diminish God's word so that we can coddle people's sin and make them feel less of their guilt that's there, not because of what we've done, but because of how they stand in align- or misalignment to God's word. We are not to twist God's word so that we can can align it with the perversions of the twisted generation and we are not to sugarcoat God's word so we strip it of its value and we can make it in some way more palatable to people in their death no what are we to do that we may be be what people who are so filled with the light of life that we shine Not because it originates in us, but because it has come into us. Friends, the word does not need our adornment. Christians are called to adorn our lives with the word of Christ. God's word is sufficient to perform this whole three-part pattern in our life. By the teaching, by reproof, by correction, and training in righteousness. That's what Paul instructs a young pastor named Timothy in. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. God's word, or the word is God-breathed, it says. Fully sufficient. 
for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. You see, when Christians fix the attention of our minds, the affections of our heart, and the volition of our will on God's word in order to walk by faith and obedience, we shine as God's light in the world. But imagine if, imagine if every time you wanted to complain, you caught it as a thought before it dripped into your heart and slipped out over your tongue. Let me tell you why that's important. Because once it gets into your heart, it will come out of your mouth. Because the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. If you'll catch it in the mind, and imagine if you would learn to do this, and you measured it in that instant against God's truth. Because you see, Romans 12, 2 tells us that the transformation of our life into Christ-likeness is beginning where? By the renewal of our mind. It was the darkness of Adam and Eve's thinking that led them to eat of the, uh, of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God is redeeming what sin has perverted and twisted. If you catch it in the mind and you measure it against God's truth and in that instant you begin to see how that one voiced complaint is like the threshold to open up into where you are struggling to believe that something, uh, believe something about God or something God is dealing with you on. You, you're struggling with doubts. You're struggling with speculations about God, about his goodness, about his favor, about his character, about the depths and the extent of which he really loves you. And you, you begin to confess them to us. Or, or you struggle with the sin that you feel like has been hidden, but because you caught this complaint when the temptation to offer it or speak it came across your mind and you realize how it counters and confronts God's word and it says to you there's a greater hope but you say but God's word says you stop it at that instant you can confess and repent God I don't believe this I'm not sure I like this I don't know if I can trust you in this It's not like you're not already feeling that. You're acknowledging it. And in that instant, you say to him, here's the reason, I'm worried about this. But what if that happens? What if this happens? You cast your care and your anxiety on him because he's already commanded you to to do that. And in regards to that complaint, you actually exalt Christ and you put forth what the word teaches about the situation or the circumstance that you want to complain about. And instead of complaining about it, you begin to confess what God's word says about it. And in that, you receive the peace that only Christ can bring and you begin to embrace the hope that he gives and you begin to know the joy that only he can provide. This is what Paul instructs us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, when he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. What does he mean we destroy arguments? He's not telling us to fly off the handle in a higher, louder, longer lasting rage on social media and we'll just outlast them and that's how we'll win. No, that doesn't solve anything, friends. But where the war is 
engaged, we destroy the arguments, not necessarily that people are making to us, but that are raging within us. And every lofty opinion raised, what is that? That's an argument. That's the reasoning of your sin. Here's why I don't like it. Here's why I don't believe it. Here's why I can't trust it. And we subject it to the knowledge of God. We take it captive to obey Christ. This is me, but this is you, God. And right now, I'll say no to me so I can say yes to you. I'll decrease so you can increase. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. There needs to be less of me and more of you. And I'll believe that. That's where the war is fought. Imagine if, friends... You see, Christian, your growth and maturity depends as much on what you determine to not practice in this essential absence so not to oppose your identity in Christ and to impede your own sanctification in His image as it does to what you discipline your life to participate in, to be influenced by, and to be shaped by. You'll run yourself, you will literally kill yourself running in circles in Bible studies. That will do you zero good because you complain and argue so much. The truth of them can never get past the page that it's written on. You, you won't let it. You've, you've set the guard of complaint and argument over your mind. And you will not entertain the truth of God's word. Even though you have an intellectual understanding of it. You do not have an embracing or believing of it. And one of what Paul is telling us is one of the critical reasons... Is because you keep complaining and arguing. All you do is use it for fuel to continue to rationalize your sin. But Christians, we shine as light in the world when we fix our attention on Jesus. So through his word, all of our mind and heart get consumed by our obedience to him. This is our focus. Christians live as light in the world. By holding fast to his word. I go back to my illustration one more time. When the slugger Alvarez explained how he correct his batting stance, he went back to practice and they began to video what he was doing. And his manager, Dusty Baker, pointed it out. And he, he didn't believe it still. He said, I don't think I'm doing that. And then he began to watch video and he realized whatever the motion was, it was so incremental and so natural that he didn't do it on purpose. He didn't even know he was doing it. But he had to begin to make mental notes about when it was happening. And it was happening mid-wind up from the, from the pitcher. And so he would move his foot, drop his upper body. And by the time the pitch got released and he was deciding whether he was going to swing or not, he had to reset his body to reinvigorate the power of his swing before he could swing. And in that instant, it's already too late when they're throwing 95, 100, one guy 106 miles an hour, you have a fourth of a second to respond and you don't have time for all of that. If you're not postured right, you'll never make the swing. That's how he had to break the pattern over and over and over again. He had to tell himself, keep your foot still, keep your foot. He didn't have to tell himself, hold the bat up, stand up straight. He didn't have to tell himself any of that. He said, keep your foot still, keep your foot still, keep your foot still, keep your foot still. Keep your foot still. Why? Because that was the single thing subversively upending his whole swing. And that's what we have to tell ourselves: Stop complaining. Stop arguing. Stop complaining. Stop arguing. Stop complaining. 
Stop arguing. You see, there is no rationale that legitimizes complaining and arguing for the Christian's life. But we try, don't we? But what about, but what about we argue? No. Look at the third part of the Christian maturity pattern. Verse 17 and 18. We rejoice in Jesus Christ and invite others to join in. Ultimately, what he began to do, instead of moving his foot, was to place it. And that's what we began to do. At the inkling of temptation to complain, turn it to rejoicing. Something that's invalid and deceptive now that is fully worthy and legitimate. Rejoice in Jesus Christ and invite others to join in. Look what he says in verse 17. He says, look, um, you live as lights in the world by holding fast to the word of God so that when Christ comes, that, that in that day I may be proud that this was not, not all done in vain. But he says this, even if, even if I'm poured out as a sacrificial offering upon your faith. In other words, if my life is taken from me before the day of Christ, I'll know this. That's what he was saying. Worst case scenario, even if. You see, often we speak of the potency of two words that change everything in the Bible, right? And usually those two words are what? When we read, but God. But God. Oh, man. I've heard sermons on this. I got stirred up. I'll stand up, clap, yell, amen, everything else. But God. I was in the deepest pit of my life. But God. I was in the worst situation of my life. But God. I was under the darkest depression of my life. But God. And you know what? But God is true. There's never been a time when the word said, but God, and he didn't come through. But the problem that Paul is addressing with you and I is not whether or not we will enjoy it when it gets preached, but will we practice it when we find it in our life? And he is telling us that even if is equally as potent for the one who trusts the but gods to rejoice. Instead of our but what about and but what if that sin plays within us that, that tells us in the most stressful and the most crucial times of our life when, when sin is most appealing and temptation in the strongest, we go, but God, but God, what about and what if? And you know what I'm afraid of. What about when times are the hardest? But God, you don't understand how heavy this burden is on me. You don't understand what all it's doing to me. God does know that. Nothing justifies our complaining because Jesus is always worthy and he's always faithful when we look to him. What Paul is saying with his even if is if we will stop asking God, but what if we can believe the but gods of the scripture so that we can say in that moment, even if I will rejoice in the Lord. If this costs me Every comfort of my life, every convenience of my life, if it costs me my very life itself, it is worthy and worth it to stay faithful to Christ, even if, because he is worthy. Even if turns even the worst case scenario to rejoicing over complaining, because in Christ nothing steals our hope and takes our joy. He gives two examples Verse 20, uh, 19 to 24, he says, Timothy, who is a faithful servant with a genuine concern for the church, even above his own self-interest and preferences. And this cost Timothy a lot of personal difficulties and sufferings. 
But he says, you know, even when others were tapping out, a Timothy steps up to rejoice at personal sacrifice. And he says of Epaphroditus, who held such a genuine love and concern for the church that he was not deterred even when he was on his deathbed. On his deathbed, he was sick. He thought he was going to die. His concern is for the church and continued to serve it. Epaphroditus and Timothy are men who model for us what it means to rejoice even if and especially when everything gets more difficult and everything becomes more threatening because no matter what, Jesus will prove sufficient and he will prove worthy of it all. Friends, listen, this isn't just holy chatter. Wherever this meets you today, Paul is inviting you to recognize who you are and whose you are. And to say to him, even if I will trust in you, I will rejoice because I am glad. You see that? Paul said, I am glad. You're glad it's going to kill you? You're glad that you're going to be executed unjustly? No. He was glad that not even that could steal his hope in Christ. Even if. It turns our mind every time to remind us of the gospel that there's never a moment, a time, a circumstance, or a situation when Jesus will not prove faithful and true for us. And so we rejoice and we invite others to rejoice with us because we know that the hope and the joy that we have cannot be touched by any threat or problem that we encounter. Christians guard against practicing anything that opposes our true identity to shine his light in the world and invite others to rejoice in Jesus.